now and today, John's going to talk to us about how to succeed in science without really trying. John. A lot of pressure. <laughs> well, that was a great audience. Uh, glad I came. So this is the more important talk, so you don't have to come tomorrow. Glad you're here. Uh, okay, so what, what the hell is this, right? <laughs> That's what you're wondering. Uh, this, this began well, 12 or 13 years ago. Uh, students in Omaha, Nebraska, that's, that's the bit that you fly over going from New York to San Francisco or LA, <laughs> San Diego. Uh, they invited me to give a, a keynote seminar for um, a research festival. And this was, uh, you know, 2001 or so, 2000, I forget exactly, that's more than 12 years ago. Uh, and, you know, I thought, God, if at that stage of my career, you know, anything someone told me about the science, I would forget. Right? I mean, it may be cool, it may be something. I, and even at that point, it's a long time ago for you guys, um, I thought, man, this is completely different from when I was a young scientist. When I, when I was training, and this was in the late 70s, uh, if you went to a decent graduate school, and in the U.S. there were hundreds of them, and you were okay, you're really okay, you're pretty good to good, you were pretty much guaranteed of at least starting your own, your own group. Right? That the hurdles were, were, were much, much lower. And sometime over the next 20 years, that completely changed. In 2000 already, it was much harder to be a scientist. And it was clear that many of the people in the audience weren't going to be bench scientists. They weren't going to run their own lab. And I thought it would be useful to give them some advice. So I put together what I thought was going to be about 15 minutes of advice. And it turned into something more like 30 minutes of advice, which was a problem because then my talk was much shorter because uh, I was cut into it. Uh, and it was reasonably well received. Uh, and I just thought, well, you know, no one is doing this. No one is really giving young scientists advice. I should do this. I have a very privileged uh, existence at NIH. Uh, we don't teach. I don't have really any graduate students in my lab. It's all postdocs and all good postdocs. I'm not on any committees. I don't serve on grant committees. I don't write grants. I'm nothing to do all day, actually, right? I mean, you know, really, like perfect life, it's just science. And I thought this is something that I can give back to, to the community, which, which nurtured my career. So I, I, I am a self-appointed prophet for young scientists, right? And I just started going around the world, and I started giving this talk, um, which I've given over 100 times. And at one point, um, I gave it at a Hardin conference. Any of you been to one of these here in England, UK? They're really good meetings, often biochemical. Very small, you know, I get to meet a lot of people, meet a lot of postdoc students, it's great. And they, they typically invite editors from the major journals to, to get them excited about the science and the field that people are studying. And sitting in the audience at the talk I gave at the Hardin Conference was a woman from Nature Reviews and Cell Molecular Biology, and she said, you know, that's a pretty good talk. Why don't you write that down? Okay, so I did, with their help, and probably some of you have seen these essays. Everything I'm going to talk about today is basically in the essays, probably more eloquently stated in the essays. If for no other reason, they did a lot of editing. They, they added a lot of value to the essays. Uh, I think the best part of the essays are actually the cartoons. Uh, so these cartoons were drawn by a, uh, a postdoc who was uh, working in, named Alex Dent, who worked in the uh, lab of a good friend of mine in Loose Out at, at the National Cancer Institute. And this is the nine types of, of PIs. You could probably find your PI somewhere here. Mm -hmm. Most of us are an amalgam of these different personality types. There's the nine types of postdocs. So those of you postdocs, you can find yourselves the 12 types of graduate students. 
And Alex wrote over the course of his NIH career, this was every month in the NIH newsletter, he's got I don't know, more than 50 of these cartoons. And they're all on his website, right? And I, they're a lot better than the PhD cartoons because they're more specific for what we do, right? So I, I urge you afterwards, go just look up Alex Dent, cartoons or Dent, Indi Indiana, that's the universities that, he at, that he's at, and they have these great cartoons. Okay, I, I, I am obviously an uh, American. Uh, I did train here. I did a postdoc in London for a year. I spent a year in, in Cambridge on sabbatical. I, I sort of know the UK system, but, but every system is different. And many of you are not from the UK. Um, probably, I don't know, are any of you from Scotland? A few of you are, I think, that I met today, but not many. <laughs> You're a minority. So the advice I'm going to give you, some of it's universal and, and some of it isn't. And there are obviously obvious cultural differences, and even for an American, I'm odd, right? That should be obvious for you right off the bat, right? And the point here is that obvious, obviously as well, you shouldn't just slavishly take my advice. I mean, some of what I'll tell you is probably pretty good, and some of it's probably pretty stupid. And it's good to get advice in life, and you, you know, part of being an intelligent human being is deciding what's useful for you and what isn't, right? And the point of this talk is really to get you think about your career. Is this really what you want to do with your life? Um, and also, how do we do science? I think a lot of the ways we train you as young scientists is completely wrong. We're killing science. We're killing the thing you first loved about science. And all, all that is part of the talk, okay? So if, if you vehemently disagree with, with something I say, great. Ignore it. Right? I don't even care if you think I'm, um, I'm being recorded, so I can't use some bad words. I don't even care if you think I'm a jerk, right? Whatever. Okay, this is for you, it's not for me. Okay, how to succeed in science without really trying. I mean, quite obviously, this comes from a Broadway show. How to succeed in business without really trying. This, this show was in the early 60s. Here's the internet review. It's a light, yet scathing musical satire about a young man trying to make it in the business world. There's a movie, too. If you want to rent it, you can, probably, on Netflix or something like that. Um, this guy was the star on Broadway, and he's also in the movie. His name is Robert Morris. Of course, you've never heard of him. Um, he, he was a good star, decent voice, comedic actor. He was okay. Uh, and here's the story. Uh, like most Broadway shows, it's a pretty stupid, typical, stereotype story, but he's, he's starting at a company, a fictitious company, the American Wicked Company. First day on work, he's in the mailroom, bottom of the ladder and um, he finds this book. And the book tells him how to be an executive vice president within a year without ever having to do any work. Right? Everyone's dream. Right? And it's a bunch, as the review said, it's a bunch of cynical advice. Uh, one of the things is you come in uh, 15 minutes earlier than everyone else in the office, you mess up your hair and your clothes, and you pretend you spent the night in the office, right? Working hard. And if you do this in the lab, we will be impressed. Something pragmatic, and it's a whole bunch of things like that, right? So you know, is that it's questionable whether that would work with business? Would that would that work in science? Um, this is fine as far as it goes from here on. It's who you know. Uh, is that true? You know, can you succeed without really trying? Um, well, of course you, you can't, right? And 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 it's a joke, okay? Which most people in the world get, and I have to admit. Germans typically don't get the joke. Uh, they're about the only ones who don't really get it. Uh, and, and Germans have accused me of being prejudiced, and I forgot to put the slide in, but that actually, it was an article in the New York Times where they measured the humor index in various countries around the world, and appreciation of irony in Germany was pretty low. 
<laughs> I, have, I have data to back up my contention. So. Uh, I actually love Germans, and so I'm not going after you guys. Okay, and even if you're just starting in science, you probably realize this, and that it, not only can you not succeed without trying, it, it's probably the hardest thing you actually could do with your lives, okay? If you're looking for the career that required the greatest lifelong effort for the least amount of, of money that you're going to make, <laughs> congratulations. I mean, you can phone your parents after this talk and say, I found it. This is, this is I've, what I've always been looking for, you know, huge effort, no rewards, okay? And do not kid yourself. Uh, do not think uh, that as you move along the ladder that things are going to get easier. You're going to start as a PhD. This is literally, as far as I can tell on the internet, this is the, the, the highest rock wall in the world, right? This, this, this climb. And this is the route that people have taken up and it's somewhere in Patagonia. So, you know, you start as a PhD at the bottom and don't think that once you're a postdoc, things are going to get easier, right? You, you know more, it's true. You actually should have the best time in your career as a postdoc because somebody else is footing the bill and you're surrounded by people who are smart and the PI knows what you're doing and you can talk all the time. So all that's good. On the other hand, you're going to be on this crushing pressure what's next, okay? And don't think, we're going backwards, I didn't mean to do that. So don't, don't think once you get that tenure track job, that assistant professorship, that things are gonna be easier. For most people, this is the hardest you're gonna work in your entire life, entire life, right? At that point, you're probably in your mid-30s, you're married, you have kids, you have all these demands. You know, I'll never forget that first day when I was an assistant professor and I walked in and there was my new office and you know, there's that shiny desk and everything is empty and there's no books and there's nothing, there's no people. And you sit down and you go, oh, shit, <laughs> now what, right? I mean, because you have not been trained for that moment. You don't know anything. You know how to design and interpret experiments, and, but everything else, how to manage people, how to manage a budget, how to write grants, you're going to have to learn all that. You know, how to teach courses, all the subject material. So that's going to be very challenging. It used to be once you got tenure, you could sort of... You know, lean back, but no more. Look at your PIs. I mean, they're nervous wrecks, right? <laughs> they lose their funding, they're gone. So that world is over in the world, basically, where you can just relax when you have tenure. And full professor, I won't lie to you, once you hit 50, I mean, you can't work that hard anyway. I mean, you're just you're not that efficient anymore. Even if you're trying, it's just like you're, mostly you're just, you know, treading water, okay? So even if you wanted to, you probably can't make the same effort, but you're still nervous all the time. Right? That you're going to lose your funding, your lab is going to leave you, right? So finally, when you reach the summit, you can retire, and then you can relax, right? But it's going to be this lifelong effort. And you will, you know, depending on what country it is, we're just talking at lunch about how a full professor in Spain makes what a postdoc does in the U.S. So in most countries, you will make a decent living as you move along, but you will not get rich. Right? And all you guys, you're smart. You're energetic, you're creative, you can make a lot more money and have a lot better family life doing something else, basically. Okay? It's one of the messages today. You do not have to do science. You don't. Okay, no one's forcing you. So we're gonna continue on these philosophical issues. Okay, most important thing then, why, you know, why are you not crazy to be in science? And maybe you are. Okay? You better really love science. Better really love it. Because that in the is is really the payoff. And what does that mean? I think for most of us, most of you, I hope, you're intensely curious. You know, as a little kid, you, just, you wanted to know stuff. 
Uh, mommy, how does, that, how does that truck work? How, what, what is gravity? Why was the sun bright? I mean, you just want to know things, just, just for the sake of knowing them. Right? You have this burning desire uh, to, to know the answer, to know the answer. And, you know, if you ever make a discovery, it's just like, oh my God, it's like an orgasm for your mind, right? It's just like, oh my God, this is amazing. Even if it's a tiny little thing, you know, late at night you realize something and, and you're sitting there and you recognize you're the first person who ever lived to, to know this thing about nature. To know this thing about nature. That's an amazing feeling. That, that is the primary reward in science. Right? And you cannot fake that. You either have it or you don't. Okay? And if you do, that's great because you will keep making discoveries. That is the reward. Everything else is the price you pay. And here's something that took me a long time to realize. I mean, I loved making discoveries right from the get-go. And I've been involved in lots of discoveries, and I love that. But then I realized in the end that every discovery at some level is tainted. Often it's the next day when you go in and see the boss, and he says, did you mix up the samples? Right? It's the first thing we always say, right? <laughs> Sometimes you have. But even if you haven't mixed up the samples, and even if it's made it into Cell or Nature or whatever prestigious journal, it, it never fails. It's never quite as beautiful and simple and elegant as you first thought. There's always complications, even in physics, right? Not to mention biology, which is super complicated. So what I realize in the end, what I really like, I do love making discoveries, but I actually love everything about it. I love having an idea, sitting down, doing that first experiment. It doesn't work so well, but it's a glimmer, right? So then you think about it a little better, and you do it again. And then you do it again. And every time you do it, you do it a little bit better. And the whole time you're thinking, you're thinking, and you're writing in your notebook of what you're doing. And that is what I really like, actually. It's, it's actually chasing the rabbit. It's not necessarily catching it. That whole process of making a discovery and, and improving your methods and your thinking and thinking of trolls. That's what you've really got to love for this to be a reasonable career for you. Right? So if you don't believe me, here's what Einstein had to say about it. Talking to Freud, in this case. The state of mind which enables a man to do work of this kind is akin to that of the religious worshiper or the lover. Here's the important bit. The daily effort comes from no deliberate intention or program, but straight from the heart. Straight from the heart. Right? Your attitude ought to be, you know, you wake up in the morning, 7 o'clock, ah, oh, man, I can't wait to get to the lab. Right? I can't wait to get to the lab. You've you got to feel lucky that someone will let you stay in the lab. If you wake up and you're like, oh, Christ, I got a lab today? Do, do something else with your life. Really. Right? It's not worth it. Science, uh, it's got to be fun. You've got to really love it. And I think we've done... Uh, a, a bad job, my generation, the generation before me. I think we've turned something that was a lot more fun. Fun levels were up here. And somewhere the fun levels are down here. Right? And my own take on this is a lot of this is how pragmatic we've made science. Uh, tomorrow we're supposed to cure HIV or, or lung cancer or, 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 or some other disease. Right? And, and, and good science does not work that way. Good science works when, when curious people are creatively working together with no acute pressure on them. In an environment that not where every second is fun, but people are generally having a good time. The, the most creative labs that I ever see are the happiest labs. People get along, there's a lot of laughter, there's joking. Th these are good labs. And 
this is the kind of lab you want to be in, right? So if you're not in a lab like that now, try to be in a lab like that for your postdoc. When you have your own lab, if lucky few of you who do, make that the attitude in your lab, okay? This, is, this will be better science, everyone will be happier. And I'm gonna cross the line here, I'm gonna get into some crap psychology, right? So I've had about 50 postdocs over the year and I have four children. So I, you know, I've dealt with, with people and what I've seen is that life is mostly about attitude. You'll take two people in pretty much identical circumstances, one of them is happy, the other one is miserable. Be the happy person. Life is not perfect, stuff happens, you have to deal with it. Every day you wake up, you should just try to be happy. Okay, here's something I read and I thought it was just bullshit, but I tried it because I'm a scientist, I'm an empiricist. What I read was that if you're not terribly happy, go look in the mirror and smile at yourself and you will be happier. I said, oh, that can't be true. You know, so I went in the mirror and I started laughing at myself. Right? Try that, okay? If I have a choice between two people from my lab, a person who's happy, who isn't quite as bright as the other person who's pretty miserable, I'm going with the happy person, okay? Maybe they're not as bright, I don't care. I don't want to be miserable. Misery is like a virus, it, it spreads. And there is no substitute for enthusiasm in life or in science. Give me the enthusiastic person. They will overcome their deficit in intelligence with their enthusiasm. If you lack the enthusiasm, you will not overcome that. Try to be as happy as you can be, okay? Just, just my advice in life. Something else, right? Ego is, is useful in science, we all need it, we want to show how, how smart, we want to show everyone else how smart we are, this is good, it, it drives you, you need this drive. But never forget this, your work is not that important. I, I've never met anybody in biology, and I've met a lot of famous people, who, who were so special and so smart, that if their parents hadn't had that magic moment to create them, that someone else wouldn't have come along and made that discovery. Okay, no, no one. Okay, no one. And if that's your attitude, that you're the most important person in the world, you will disobey my previous law. You will not be happy, and you will be the virus that makes everybody miserable around you. Even if you are wildly successful, I've got one of these intermediary metabolism charts in my lab to remind me every day, something I had to memorize like six times on my way through uh, college and medical school and graduate school, right? Um, <clears throat> each line on this chart, right, that, you know, there's the chart. Each line was probably 50 papers that people were fighting about. Who should get the credit for? Who did it first, right? Fighting over which, what journal it's published, fighting at meetings. At the end of the day, your life's work will be reduced to a line or two, or maybe 10 if you're super famous, of a giant chart of life that future students will just basically terribly resent memorizing. <laughs> that, that's everything that seems so au courant today. If you're lucky, you get a tiny line that everyone thinks is boring, right? And even then, your interpretations may be completely overturned or trivialized by future findings. That's just the way it goes in science. In fact, it's way better if you've done everything right to, to be wrong about the facts than to do everything wrong and get the facts right. And we're going to get back to that. In any event, trying to be a famous uh, scientist is a completely futile exercise, completely. Uh, shouldn't he have a bigger monument? After all, he did invent fire and the wheel. Uh, here's an experiment that I do all the time. Long before you were in the grave, people will completely forgotten what you did as a student, as a postdoc, even five years ago. 
right? So the, the, the rewards in science is the work itself. It's nothing you get from the, the work. Not even the Stoker Prize is enough to justify that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, second prize, two weeks in Glasgow. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> That's a joke. Okay, what, what is science really? Right? What science really is, despite giving out Nobel Prizes, and, and these people are stars of the University of Glasgow or NIH or whatever, what science really is, is, is a communal exercise. The, the most communal exercise man has ever embarked on. Right? And what are all of us, I mean everyone in the room, me, all of us, the head of the institute, everybody, we're basically ants in the international scientific colony. That's what we are. You know, and, and instead of bringing back little sugar to the colony or whatever it is, some dead other dip, bits of dead insects, <laughs> what we bring back to the colony is little discoveries that we bring back for the rest of the colony to appreciate it to work into the colony. That's what we do. We're all ants. And if you're going to be happy in science, you've got to be happy being an ant, just contributing to the, the, this communal knowledge that humanity is, 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 is establishing. This international nature of science is really something amazing. I can look out in this room and see people probably from 40 different countries. This, this is phenomenal. Every lab is like a little Star Trek. Right? Where each bay it's someone else from a different planet. It's an incredibly cool thing. You're a scientist, you get to meet people from all over the world. You make friends from all over the world. It's really remarkable. T tell me another career like this. There isn't that I know about. And at the end of the day, it's a force for world peace and understanding. Very useful uh, for America to have so many foreigners who come in science and work. Because they go home. And then when you have a president like George Bush, People go, boy, I hate America. They're all just total assholes. The guy goes, ah, you know, I lived there for a while. And they're not all George Bush and Dick Cheney. Some of them are very useful, right? <laughs> very nice people, okay? Not only that, you know, countries that exchange personnel and have this interchange, they're, they're much less likely to hurl nuclear weapons at each other. Much less likely. They realize everyone's just a person like everywhere else, right? And, and obviously this goes on, but this, this, this international... Uh, unity of science really could be expanded. It really is very, very useful socially. Which brings me to the favorite part of the talk, which is the kumbaya moments. I want you to join arms with the person next to you and sing kumbaya. I think something people do in summer camp in the U.S. Okay, what, what are you? What you are is an important member of a noble enterprise that began in the Renaissance. Do not take the scientific method for granted. It, it seems trivial. It's so simple. Form a hypothesis. You know, learn a second grade. Form a hypothesis. Test the hypothesis. It, it's not trivial. It took man 50,000 years to figure out the, the scientific method. Right? With the scientific method, this brain can understand everything capable about the universe as it is. Without the scientific method, we're, we're, we're basically just mystical people who are basing everything on superstition. Right? And it isn't just science. It's no coincidence that when the scientific method was formulated in Western Europe, people thought really carefully about how a government should be formulated. Right? That we have a democracy, that we base government on, on, um, on evidence and not on faith. Right? We had an eight-year experiment in the U.S. where we based government on faith and not evidence. And we all know how that ended. Right? We're still dealing with the consequences. So my daughter was in Austin, Texas a couple of years ago, and, and she said, Dan, you'll like this. Uh, this was a, uh, you know, someone had painted this on a, on, a, on a wall. If you base medicine on science, you cure people. If you base the design of planes on science, they fly. 
If you base the design on rockets on science, they reach the moon. It works, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> Credited to Richard Dawkins, one of my heroes. Right? So we are training you, actually, to be a high priest of my religion, which is scientific Methodism. And I've been ragging the right a little bit, but I actually think the left is more dangerous. The people who think that the vaccines are harmful and genetically modified food is bad and everything natural is good and everything man makes is bad. These are very dangerous people. And whatever our philosophical differences, I happen to like living in a highly technical world where I have a nice laptop computer and a flat screen TV that I can watch Arsenal games on every Saturday. I like this world. Uh, whatever. Uh, and I may appreciate that other people may want to be hunter-gatherers. It's fine for them, right? Uh, but there's no going back. And here's the problem. When I started this talk, literally, there were 6 billion people on the planet. And now there are 7 billion people on the planet. And I'm not telling you that science and technology is perfect and it's nirvana and there's nothing wrong with it. Obviously, there's plenty wrong with it. But the solutions to the problems created from science and technology are solved by more science and technology. Okay? And who's going to do that? You're going to do that. So it's a crap career, I'm telling you that, right? The pay is bad, the work is hard, it's fun, but you don't have to deal with a lot of difficult people. But here's the thing. Every day you get to wake up, look in the mirror when you do the smiling test, and see that person looking back at you and know you are part of the solution. You guys are givers, you are not takers. You could take your brains and go to the city in London or Wall Street in the U.S. and make ten times as much money, but then you will be takers. It's, it's a fantastic thing when you can stand back and think, man, I am doing something good for humanity. Okay? And so thank you for doing science. I really, I thank you. I don't know why you're doing it. My son is doing it as well. I don't know why, but whatever. Thank you. We need you. Right? We don't treat you that way, but I am here to pat you on the back and say you are doing a fantastic thing with those brains that you have. Okay? So thank you very much. At the end of the day, What's your important job? What's my most important job? It's not actually the discoveries. It took me 30 years of being a scientist to realize. The discoveries, maybe they're true, maybe they're not true. Okay, if we've done them well, they'll be true-ish. Right? Sometimes they're not true just for reasons we could never figure out. But if they're not true and I've trained you the right way to be a scientist, you will figure that out or your students will figure that out. If I've trained you the wrong way, if I've trained you that cheating and lying is fine, even if you've gotten the right answer, you will destroy science. Science has to be done with the highest ethical standards. Not the least of which is that we need public money, and it is very easy for people to attack science based on the bad practices of just a few bad apples. Okay? So at the end of the day, most important job is to pass the torch to the next generation. Okay, the rest of the talk we're getting more and more practical. How to succeed in experiments without really trying. How to make discoveries, you want to be the bee. You want to be the person who takes ideas in one field and bring them to another field. How do we do this? Go to seminars in other fields, right? Talk to your colleagues, talk to your colleagues, talk to your colleagues. Every time you talk to someone and tell them something, you'll realize a flaw in your arguments. Every new person you talk to, you'll get a completely different take on what you're doing. The less they know about what you're doing, the better often. Because they'll have a really good basic question. Tell a 10th grader sometime what you're doing. Okay? Someone who's 14 or 15. Right? Who's smart. Just tell them what you're doing and see what questions they ask you. 
Sometimes they'll ask you the most profound question, the deepest question that you've just neglected. Okay, talking is really important. These days you've got to collaborate. Just, it's essential. Taking people who are experts in two different areas, put them together, it's, it's almost certain they'll come up with something really cool together. Okay, collaboration, important. Reading widely, right, but not necessarily deeply. I think the way you're taught to read papers in journals clubs, it, it, it's completely wrong. You're taught that every paper has to be dissected to the last word. You're taught that every paper is the worst paper ever published. You're taught that every figure is completely uninterpretable, right, because of this, that they didn't use the correct sodium chloride concentration. Okay, whatever, right? What's published in a paper, the problems with the paper are the problems for the authors to figure out. Why do I read papers? I read them because I'm selfish. I read papers to get ideas, right? And the further afield, often, the better for getting ideas. So you don't have to get way into a paper, right? It's particularly in the beginning. If you really need to reproduce what they do, then you got to get into it. But at first, we're just looking for ideas, looking for ideas, right? So scanning lots of papers, looking for things that I can do in my own two hands in my lab. Ideas, ideas. In fact, when you're starting a project, too much knowledge about what you're doing can be counterproductive. I'm sure you know a really smart person who sits at their, their computer all day who never does experiments. Because they're so smart, they know nothing will ever work. Okay? That those people will never be successful because they don't actually make discoveries because they're too smart to make discoveries. They know this is stupid, that's stupid, this paper proves this, this paper proves that, so they never do anything. To make a discovery, you have to do an experiment, unless you're a bioinformaticist, of course, <laughs> right? In which case, one of you guys has to do an experiment and they get to analyze your data, but somebody has to do an experiment. Okay, and, and to me, an idea is just a, you know, a good idea is just an excuse to do an experiment. And I don't care if it's completely wrong. I want to do something new. I need an idea. So I have this excuse, I'm going to do an experiment. This is really important. Okay, so citing an example. You get an idea, right? You, you can't wait to get in and talk to your PI. You know, she's really happy to see you, and she's, she's like smiling when you first start because we love it when you're enthusiastic. As I told you, there's nothing like enthusiasm. But then you explain the idea in more detail, and you know, the smile sort of gets neutral. And for the next half hour, she tells you why, well, it's a good idea, but it won't work for this reason, and it won't be interpretable for that reason. And, you know, if you're normal, typical, you're going to walk out, and you're like, oh, man. Okay, I guess I'm not going to be a scientist after all. I'll call my mom. Okay, but if you're good, you know, a half hour later you're going to think, you know, come and see me. You know, John, he's getting old. <laughs> you know, I, I think he's just full of it. I think I'm going to do the experiment anyway, right? <laughs> and, and here's my advice to you. If, if you're really keen on doing an experiment, just, just do the experiment. Okay, just, just do the experiment, right? Uh, if you search the internet for pain in the ass, <laughs> the image search, to me this is the funniest image as of the last month or two, uh, the best students are pain in the ass. They don't listen to you. Okay? I, I am a refugee from medical school. What I hated about medicine was that people tell you what to do. I don't do well with direct commands, even if they're reasonable ones. I just, I, I just repel against that. I went into science because I didn't want anybody telling me what to do. Right? I had my own ideas. I just wanted to do it myself, and even if I was wrong, and if I was wrong, I'd work hard and get something that eventually worked. And the best students are this way. They don't listen to you. They listen to some things, but they're very independent-minded. 
Okay, now let's flash forward five or 10 or 15 years. You wanna have your own lab? Well, where are the ideas gonna come from? They better come from your head. And what do you think? At some point, there's gonna be a fairy that flies over you and sprinkles dust? In Scotland, they may have it, but in the US, it doesn't, right? It, no fairies around. Maybe in Ireland. Where are the fairies? Are they somewhere in the, in the UK, right? But they're not in the US, right? There are no fairies, right? You, if you're gonna be an independent scientist, the earlier you can start thinking independently, the better. Okay, the better. Now, you know, we're not complete idiots, right? Most of the time, uh, you know, we give you advice. It, it, it doesn't, you know, the advice is good and the experiment doesn't work. Okay, so we were right. But here's something else, right? Here's an experiment I performed today and I performed all around the world. You walk into a building, there's plenty of space. You never see a human being actually doing an experiment, ever, ever. Right? And if I walk out of my office and people aren't just like reading ESPN uh, on the computer or you know, there's actually someone in there holding a pipette, I'm really, really happy. Because I, I make a discovery. So what are they doing? I have no idea. I don't know what you do all day. I have no idea what my people in the lab do all day. I, I don't even care, actually. If they're working, I'm happy. Okay? So I told you not to do the experiment. Don't listen to me. Don't, don't you do the experiment. If it doesn't work, I don't need to know. <laughs> I'll never know that, that you did the experiment. I don't care, right? Okay, but you keep doing this. Keep doing this over and over again. You keep. You have your own ideas. You keep doing experiments. Sooner or later, as it's happened to all of us, basically, all of us PIs, one or, once or twice in our careers, we had that great moment of walking in the PI's office with a notebook open to the experiment that wouldn't work, with a shit-eating grin on our face, <laughs> and I say, you know, John, you want to see that experiment you told me wouldn't work? And I am not going to be angry, quite the opposite. I am going to be super happy. I like when things work, obviously. But this is the first step in your progression to being independent. And I am really, really proud of you. Someone you respect told you not to do it, you didn't listen to them. Good. Right? And then you made a discovery, better. Okay, this is, this is how you become an independent scientist. If you ever discover something important in the world, everyone will say you're wrong. This is just natural. Well, how do you think you're going to have the confidence to say, no, you're wrong and I'm right? It's got to start early in your graduate school career. Okay, so I've put this in mathematical format for you bioinformaticists and others who are quantitatively in inclined. The doability, D, equals the interest I cubed over the effort. Okay, so it's it looks like it's going to be really interesting. You should do the experiment. Here's a key part of science that a lot of people miss. If it's really easy, you should do the experiment, right? And I, I am a big fan of easy experiments, really big fan. Many discoveries are made based on really easy experiments. Once you get good at experiments, you can often do an easy experiment as part of a harder experiment, right? And have a couple of irons in the fire at the same time. This is a really good strategy. The more experiments you do, the more discoveries you will make. It's proportional. Right, you have to do experiments. Did I mention that? Maybe. Okay, what am I going to work on? Pick something interesting or important. It's no harder than working on something that's uninteresting or unimportant. It's surprising I have to say this, but some people are afraid to work on something that other people are working on. Duh, you have to. Okay, unfortunately, you have to pick something fundable. In a perfect world, you would not. If you were interested in the, a virus that infects frogs in a certain valley in Papua New Guinea, in an intelligent world, people would give you money to do that because that virus will probably tell us something we would like to know about evolution or cell biology or immunology or something. But we don't live in a perfect world, obviously. 
So you have to pick something that people will give you money for. If you're a virologist, this is easy. You pick something that kills people. Very simple rule, okay? The more, the better, okay? And then you can do whatever you want with it, but pick flu or, or, or HIV or, or dengue, just something that kills people, okay? Very simple rule there. That you can remember probably. Um, and then you, you, know, you want to do something truly original. You want to try to avoid super crowded fields. And if people are interested afterwards, in my opinion, virus per virus, I will give them to you and you know, trends that are happening. But you really want to do something original. You try to find some place where you can express your creativity and originality. And very important, particularly when you start your own lab, is to exploit your own strengths and surroundings. I'm into stone, there's a hell of a lot of it around, right? You can have the best idea in the world, but if, 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 if you can't do the experiment, it's, it's useless. What, what science is, experimental science, is the art of what you can do with your two hands in your environment in a reasonable time frame. Okay, and that has to factor into experiments. You can have a, a brilliant idea for an experiment, but if you can't do it, you're wasting your time. And we're not here just to impress people with how smart we are. We are here to make discoveries. So we have to think of things that we can do as experiments. Okay, and just a special tip, if your lab is really good at something that's hard, just learn it whether you need it for your postdoc or your PhD, just learn it. Because later it'll be useful to you probably. Okay, if it's not too hard, just learn it. You're going to have to pick basic research versus translational research. And I know we're pushing you toward translational research, but don't underestimate the value of basic research. It, if you give a smart person enough money and enough time, they will always discover something interesting. Never fails. Never. I've never seen it fail. This will always pay off for society in the long run. The, the problem is the long run may literally be 50 years to take a discovery and actually use it for something that then cures a person or makes them feel better or makes money for somebody, which is actually the real definition. Right? It will always pay off. Knowledge, of course, is power. Right? So who's the problem here? It's really not the public or the politicians. I've been in Washington for a while and been involved in public policy. The problem with this push to translation research are scientists, right? Science, us, right? This is a fight we always have to fight. Basic research is useful. Translational research, yes, crucial to help humanity propel the research enterprise. I agree with that. Here's the problem. It doesn't require excessive creativity. Doesn't reward creativity. In fact, it often punishes creativity. You're a bright young student, you're in a translational lab, you make a discovery that shows that the six million dollars that the US government has given to this project is going to be wasted because it can't possibly work. People don't want to hear that, right? Because then they're going to have to give back the six million dollars and they're not going to do that. Okay, and this, this happens. I'm not making this up. And here's the thing, you know, uh, most things don't work. So why have I used this metaphor? Because translational research is typically the road to nowhere. Okay, it doesn't lead anywhere because you're on this one road and even if you find something interesting, you can't get off the road. You are destined for nowhere Nevada. Okay, and that's just the way it goes because it's hard to develop a drug or a treatment that works in a person. And many of you will wind up at companies, which is a good thing, I think it's great. Uh, they, they're the ones who literally have to translate the discoveries into products, uh, but they exist for one reason. Uh, for goodness sakes, get Hep Schwartz. We're not trying to do away with the common cold. Uh, that's from 1957. We could have labeled this 2014. Uh, companies exist to make money. They don't exist 
to, to prevent disease or help people or do good science. They exist to make money. That's their only Darwinian selection pressure. And just remember that if you go to a company. Okay, how to make discoveries, interpreting your data is critical. There's, there is something special about doing an experiment and getting the data. You can think much better about it afterwards than before. So I encourage you, and I always wanted to work more into my talk, um, think out of the box. Okay, think out of the box. You get the data, you know, close your eyes, and this is really fun in a group actually, to, to brainstorm and think, okay, here are the data. What is the most interesting thing this could possibly be? What would make this a nature paper? What, 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 what interpretation would make this really interesting? Many times I have seen people, and I've read papers actually, where there was a really interesting and probably likely interpretation that the authors missed because they didn't think about it, because they were so wedded to their hypothesis that they couldn't see the light. This happens all the time. Don't be that way. Many of the best discoveries are made by multiple labs, and one lab actually thought about what it means and comes up with a really good paper. So every experiment, think about it. This is the fun anyway. I never understood why people didn't want to just cherish their data and really think hard about it and believe the data and think, okay, what could this mean? Think big. I want you guys to have big ambitions, right? Why is your project important? You know, when you give a job talk for assistant professorship, tenure track job, what stands out, and I can tell you because I've been in a lot of them, is the person who gets up there and they start the talk by telling you what the important biological problem they're working on is. And during the talk, they're always trying to generalize what they found to the more important issues. At the end of the talk, they tell you why this is really interesting and important way we train many of you guys these days is to focus on the minutiae. And I think many people lose sight of what they are actually studying, what the big problems actually are. Okay? You want to know how this applies to all of biology, big picture. And I want you to have big ambitions. I want you to have the idea that you can make a great discovery. Which is why I put Obama here. Who ever would have thought that this guy who, you know, six years before he was president was a state senator in Illinois to be president of the USA, right? You are all capable of winning a Nobel Prize, each and every one of you, okay? And I want that to be your attitude, not that you're going to be an arrogant jerk, but that you can make a great discovery, that when the apple falls on your head, you think gravity, right? You could be Newton, okay? You can't be afraid to make an important discovery. By the end of your PhD, by the end of your postdoc, and whatever you're studying, you should be the world's expert. Obviously, you're not infallible, like the Pope is, uh, but you should not worry about someone asking you a difficult question because you really should be the world's expert. So you can't just do the experiments. You've got to read the papers. You've got to talk to people. You've got to go to meetings and meet the people. Again, there's not going to be a fairy in your life who now, poof, makes you a PI. Your whole career, we have to prepare for this, where we're going to be really independent. We're going to think on our own. We're going to meet people on our own. Very important. You're doing work. You make a discovery. It's nothing to do with your hypothesis. Okay? Nothing to do with it. So it's okay to get sidetracked if it's something really interesting. Now, these are hard decisions, you know? I, I think I'm studying the proteasome, and I discover something about translation. Should I leave the proteasome and study translation? Oh, tough decision. Not your call as a student because you don't have the money. But sooner or later it will be your call. And 
in general, it's a good idea to embrace serendipity. Probably my favorite word of the English language. This is the guy who coined it, Horace Walpole. Uh, this was based on the Princes of Serendip, which was the ancient name for Sri Lanka. And the idea was they went around on their elephants looking for things and always finding things better than what they were looking for. So the key word being sagacity, right? Sagacity, insight. Uh, they were smart. Uh, looking for a needle in the haystack and finding the farmer's daughter. That would be Julius Connolly's <laughs> definition. Now, not this way. Dr. Moore conducting an experiment to test the theory. Then most great discoveries were hit on by accident. No, not quite like this, but like that. So everyone know who this is? Somebody? Someone French out there? Yeah, it's Louis Pasteur. Right? So um, this is the real French quotation that I could find in Wikipedia anyway. And uh, chance favors the prepared mind. It's actually... I speak a little French, it's a little more involved than that, right? So, you know, microbiologists, virologists, you should know about Louis Pasteur. This guy was amazing. You talk about thinking out of the box, right? Just an incredible guy. Discovered that chemicals could be left and right-handed, and because yeast only made left-handed, they must have something called an enzyme, which was doing this one thing. I mean, whoa, and 50 other things, right? He was an amazing scientist. You are but an hour flight away from the Pasteur Museum, uh, not to mention you know one of the great cities in the world. And if you haven't been to the Pasteur Museum, I urge you to go. There you will see the world's first autoclave. You will see the flask with uh, Pasteur finally put the stake in the heart of spontaneous generation. You'll see his microscope. And if you're like me, you will be crying tears of appreciation <laughs> for this man, who was a phenomenal uh, uh, scientist. And, Pasteur knew this, and how was he lucky? Because he was very lucky, he worked really hard. Right? So now I mentioned you should do lots of experiments, maybe. Right? The more experiments you do, the luckier you will be. You won't necessarily know that the discovery you've made is a great discovery. Uh, discovery meaning the discoveries are often hidden. Take many years. My favorite discoveries are when the postdoc comes to me and they say, John, this doesn't make any sense. And they don't like those discoveries particularly if they're students, right? Because if you're a graduate student, you make one of these, you see your thesis receding into the distance, right? How can I ever publish this thing? But this is where you want to be as a scientist. You want to make a discovery that is true, the observation that you can't explain with what you know, right? Because this means you have sailed off the edge of the known earth, which is a good thing, right? And that is something you should never forget, that we, how do we explain this? Because this is what we live for, are these discoveries we can't explain. And these days we can't publish, although this is what PLOS One was invented for, right? So I would encourage you to take that route. But never forget these, right? And, and just always remind yourself, and write them down on a post-it note, and wherever new job you have, put the post-it note up there. Uh, for the last five or more years in my lab, we have been uh, working with discoveries I made as a graduate student that back in the 70s, you couldn't explain with what we knew about flu. But with the tools today, these are all good papers. I never forgot, and I took good notes, which we'll get to. All right, here's a pet peeve. Never use the P word, P, prove, okay? If you're English, there's no excuse, but if you're not, you know, maybe the word means something different. But what prove means is that you can't be wrong. So this is Einstein, who is a physicist. No amount of experimentation can ever prove me right. A single experiment can prove me wrong. As smart as he was, arguably the smartest man ever to live, uh, he's wrong. I mean, even the experiment proving him wrong could be wrong. Because we don't prove anything in science. 
right? If you want to prove things, you should be a mathematician or you should be a priest or a pope, right? They can prove things. The best we can prove is that observations are statistically likely to be accurate. That's all we do. Nature is essentially unknowable in any definite way. And I would urge you to think about this a little bit. I didn't think about this until I was 50. What do we know about nature? What is the, what is the, what is the nature of knowledge? I wish I had taken the philosophy course as an undergraduate. I should have. Uh, you, you, you all should have to. But think about this. Buy some books and just think a little bit about it at age 25, about what we do uh, to understand nature. Interpretations are always subject to modification, and they will be modified. One of the things that really annoys me is when you write a paper and they say the discussion is too speculative. I believe that everybody who writes a paper has earned the right to prove to the world in the discussion how stupid they are. Right? So the point of a discussion is to spark interest and ideas in other people. And if it's completely wrong, who cares? Right? Everybody understands it's speculation. This is the point of a discussion. It is not just to reiterate what is in the paper. That's what the rest of the paper is for. Okay, this you probably know. You must be a professional skeptic. Right? Always question your assumptions. Here's something I want you to do as an exercise. Next time you do an experiment, which I hope is tomorrow, or maybe this afternoon, um, think about every assumption you are making in this experiment. Every single one. Every assumption. Just try to make a list of everything we are assuming that you just do without ever thinking about it. Okay? Like, what is the plastic doing to the buffer? How do I know how pure the chemicals are? How do I know what the antibody binds to? There's a thousand things that we take for granted in an experiment that a really good person doesn't really take for granted. Because they're unconscious, they're processing all these things that could screw the experiment up. What are your assumptions that are going into this experiment? Not to mention the subject material you're, you're, you're dealing with. And at the end of the day, it's our job to disprove our most cherished models and ideas. We can't fool nature. We are here to find out about nature. And if we're wrong, it's a good thing to know and it's a good thing to admit. Okay. More practical. How to succeed <laughs> in your lab without really trying. Learn some bioinformatics. I would say learn a lot of bioinformatics. The, 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 biology is too complicated to understand without bioinformatics. It just, it just is. And even if you're going to be a bench guy your whole life, you need to talk to the bioinformaticists. So You've you got to learn some bioinformatics. I think the best people will be trained in both, actually. People who can merge these two fields. And if you're a bioinformaticist, you've got to learn what science is. You, you can't just have a textbook knowledge of what it is, because that's completely wrong. Okay? You got to do experiments to see how crappy the data are. Right? That, that what real science is, that everything is really messy and you, you have all these models and they're just, just, they're almost meaningless. You have to really know what's going on. And I would urge every bioinformaticist to work in the lab for at least a year. Right? And, and, and understand where the data are coming from and who's generating it and what they really are. But the two together are going to be very, very powerful. If you're just starting out, try to pick a project where you can do lots of experiments. You do not want to be in a lab where you're going to make transgenic mice or do mass spec or something fancy because you will become a technician and not a scientist. What you need to learn as a PhD is how to design and interpret experiments. And there is no shortcut to this. The more you can do, the better. Every day, in an ideal world, you'll design and interpret an experiment. You need to learn how to troubleshoot protocols. In fact, it's always a disadvantage if you walk in the lab and everything works. 
Because then you have no idea what to do when it doesn't work, which is most of the time in the real world. Okay, it's a key part of being a PhD is figuring out how to get things to work. And it's really useful when you start out and nothing works. It's frustrating. I know sometimes you want to shoot yourself, but it, in the long run, this will be very good for you. And then you need to be obsessed with controls and develop control uh, creativity. The controls are not obvious. It's something you get better at your entire life. It's one of the reasons you walk into my office. I can generally think of better controls than you do, not because I'm smarter, because I spent my whole 30 years in science thinking about controls. These aren't you know, just the control. This is usually the most important part of the paper. Without the controls, we can't interpret anything. Positive controls, negative controls. And what makes a really good paper is often the elegance of the controls. Even so, thinking really hard about them, the essential control will typically occur only after you see the data. Okay? Did I mention it's important to do lots of experiments? That's another reason why. Every time you do the experiment over and over and over again, you will think of better controls. The devil of science is in the details. You've really got to pay attention to the details. You've got to think through every step of the assay. Why are we doing this now? Why this buffer? Again, details, assumptions. Right? If you're using a machine, have an idea of how the machine works. It's not magic. If you treat it like a magical device, you'll make mistakes because you won't understand the artifacts associated with the machine. Know your reagents, right? If Pharmagen says the antibody is specific for CD154, how do we know that? What's their evidence? It's a monoclonal. Could it cross-react with something, right? Kits are good, right? I'm not going to lie. When I was a student, we didn't have kits. It's better to have them. But don't use them blindly. Try to figure out what's in the kit. Understand how the kit works. Every step of every experiment, you should be thinking how I can do it better the next time I do the experiment. Right? You don't just blindly do a protocol. And people have a misunderstanding, particularly outside of biology, what repeating an experiment means. It doesn't mean doing exactly the same motions with your fingers, it, with the exact same tubes in the same way. It means doing it better the next time. That's what a repeat is. And every time I do it, I can do it a little bit better. It could be a relatively minor thing, how I make my dilutions, where I have my tubes, where I have my waste, but all these little things. You know, experiments are basically a 10-finger ballet, right? It's highly choreographed. And every time you do the ballet, the dance, it will get better each time. We're going to think better about it. It's a, they're very intricate experiments in biology. What do I mean by this? Right? You have a great idea. Don't just make a huge experiment. It won't work. You won't do it again. People remember that when Jane did it, it didn't work, so that no one will ever do it again for the history of that lab. So start small, right? Start small, a little experiment, doesn't take as much effort, doesn't work, okay, or maybe it works a little bit. We'll do it again, a little bigger, a little bigger, better controls, better. This is how projects are born. Little experiments that get bigger and bigger. Your generation is much better versed in statistics than mine is, but you are also blinded by statistics. You see p-values and then you think you have proven something, which you have not. Statistics are only as good as the assumptions they rely on. They could be wrong, right? I have perfect p-values between siRNA and a control group, but it's not because of the scramble versus the control. It's because I always set the scramble group up on the plate edge, and I always set the control group up in the middle of the plate. And what I've proven is that there's a statistical difference between the wells in the middle of the plate and the wells in the edge of the plate. Nothing to do with my sRNA, because I wasn't thinking. I wasn't thinking about what the variables really are. In any event, conclusions should be based more on multiple experiments, particularly experiments with different angles, 
than statistics from a single experiment. Be organized in your day. This, uh, I'm hypocritical here. Uh, that's me, the dinosaur on the right. I'm forever disorganized and missing meetings and things. Plan each week. Experimentally, plan each day. Get experiments to dovetail with each other and with talk so you really can make an efficient use of your day. And you've got to put aside time for reading. Reading is really important. Okay, reading and talking to people. So try to plan this as much as you can. You'll be much more efficient. Keep a good notebook, right? Every experiment. Why am I doing this experiment? What, what's my hypothesis? All the, this is obvious. What do I need to repeat it? Weird observations with tape sticking out of the notebook, so I'm going to go back there. And then force yourself to write down a conclusion. It's very easy sometimes to do a lot of work and never think about it. You just blindly go to the next experiment without really thinking about it. But if you force yourself to write down what you think you know, this, this will help you uh, to have the discipline to really think about what you're doing. You've got to learn how to finish things. Okay? And there's some people that are really good, but they never finish anything. Okay? It's not a discovery until it's published. What we do as scientists is publish papers. This is what we do. You know, there's this myth that publisher parish is bad. No, no, no. Well, we, people pay us to publish papers. It, it's not a discovery until it's published and the world can see it. No study is perfect. Right? So I, I've had people in my lab, they never want to publish anything because it isn't perfect. It will never be perfect. And I'm not encouraging you to do shoddy research, but at some point we have to say, okay, this is enough to submit to, for publication. Right? You need this to finish your PhD. You need this to, to do a good postdoc. You need this to get grants. You have to publish papers. There are some people who have a knack for finishing projects. We call these people successful. <laughs> okay? In the lab, develop a thick skin. You want to embrace criticism because it's going to make you a better scientist, right? It's not personal usually. Remember, anything that leads to better science is good and anything that hinders better science is bad. Right? Our mission in the lab is to find the truth. <coughs> It's not to be nice to each other or honor our elders. One of the reasons science is so good in the UK and the US is no one respects the PI, right? This <laughs> is good. You go to Asia and many of the places, the PI is this God who everyone's afraid to question. That leads to really bad science. In a good lab, whoever has the best idea, whether it's the first year undergraduate who happens to be rotating through, or even the PI, that's what the lab does. It's a democracy of ideas. This is what attracted me for medicine, where it's a hierarchy of rank. Science is not based on rank, it's based on ideas. No lab is perfect, you know, all sorts of bad things go on, and you see it. If you have a complaint, offer a solution. Okay, come and see me. John, this is going on in the lab. Here's what I would do. Okay, practice being a PI, you're helping me out. I'm not necessarily going to do it, but I want to hear your opinion. Work hard. No substitute for hard work. For most people, it's usually 50 plus hours. For most people. I've seen it with less, but most people, 50 plus hours. This is not a joke, right? If you're young, you're not married, you don't have kids, you've got 24 hours a day. Well, what else should you be doing, right? And I, and I didn't tell you that being a scientist was normal. I said you had to be obsessed to be a scientist, right? If you're, gonna, if you're actually going to make a contribution. So you should want to be in the lab. It shouldn't be a big deal that you're going to work hard because it doesn't feel like work. Did I mention that? You should do lots of experiments? Like maybe. Right? And try to have more than one project. 
okay? Just to have a couple of irons in the, in the, in the fire. Uh, no substitute for hard work, none. I put this in graphical format for you, okay? So this is productivity, this is millipapers per week. I'm very <laughs> proud of that unit. I actually thought about that, millipapers per week versus hours spent in the lab. So with 10 hours per week in the lab, you are actually a negative net influence on the lab, not only accomplishing nothing yourself, but interfering with everybody else, okay? So negative. So it's minus 60 millipapers per week. At 20 hours per week, you're accomplishing nothing, but at least you aren't screwing anybody else up. 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, uh-oh, right? The curve looks something like this. It's not linear. Right? If you go from 30 to 60, you'll be four times as productive. Why? Probably because you're obsessed. At 16, you're not obsessed at 30. So 60 also means your brain, for 24 hours a day, is subconsciously processing everything. And again, this is what it takes, is this obsession. But this is what the curve looks like, not just in science, but in any difficult career, any creative career. It takes a major effort to really make an impact. And you can work really hard and be very productive and get a job, but if the PI has done all the thinking for you, again, no fairy, no, no, no career. You'll get the job and then you won't have a clue of what to do. So don't fall in the trap of just being the hands. You want to be the brain as well. You've got to be both. If you just work super hard and do nothing else, you will probably go insane. Okay? So for whatever reason, daily exercise is an excellent way to maintain sanity. My first rule of exercise is that 10 minutes is better than zero minutes. And every day, I really try to do something. I, I ride a bike to work almost every day, so at least I do that, right? But again, you walk to work, you go out for 10 minutes instead of just sitting at your desk, just get some exercise every day. Okay, you'll feel better, you'll be healthier, you'll live longer on average. This is not a problem for European audiences. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, lots of stuff goes on in the lab, and just don't get mired in any of this stuff. It's a complete waste of your time. Concentrate on your work, not on the other stuff that's going on in the lab. My favorite slide, right? I have, um, I said, four children, and every one of them always felt like this little bird where the mom is sitting on while crapping while feeding the other birds. This is human nature. Everybody thinks everybody else is getting a better deal in life, okay? And, and in a, any event, don't expect your PI to treat everyone in the lab identically. That will never happen. Why? Well, who is your PI? They are you. Plus 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Are you a perfect person? You are not. Nor am I. Was I chosen because of my skills in human management or diplomacy or financial acumen or ability to get along with people. I was not chosen to be a PI for that reason. I was chosen because I was a good postdoc. And so will you be. So don't expect your PI to be perfect because nobody is. And it's amazing we can run a lab at all, quite honestly. Right? Because we, we are not suited for this, really. It's just our personality types. Okay? And even if I'm doing a perfect job, I'm not going to treat you all identically because you all need different things from me. Okay, so I'm going to treat you all differently depending on what I think you need. You know, as I try to do a good job. In general, cut people a lot of slack. Don't get upset. Uh, take the high road with people. You know, someone bugs you, just say, okay, it's my fault. Second time, it's my fault. Sixth time, maybe we'll start thinking it's their fault. But just let most things go. Okay, a true story. I was in Germany. I was at a meeting. 
I was late getting on the train. I hadn't eaten all day. All I could get was a uh, pack of potato chips. Okay? Now, I, I got the bag of potato chips. But many of you have heard the story because other, it happened to other people. But I get the bag of potato chips. I rush on the train. I put the potato chips on the table. I go to my bed to get the computer. I come up, and the guy sitting across from me who I didn't notice is eating my potato chips. <laughs> Look at him. Like, he looks at me like, Right? So I look at him and I see the bag is diminishing. So I start eating the potato chips. And he looks at me like I'm just crazy. <laughs> so the two of us go at it. And the potato chips are emptied very quickly. And we didn't talk three hours. I get off the train. I go to my hotel. I go to the other pocket of my bag. There are the potato chips. <laughs> okay, so if you're, if you're a man and you're married, you know this. You're always wrong. Okay? If, you, if your wife does something you think is completely out of, you know, it's you. It's always you. They, it tells you, and eventually you realize it's always true. So if you're a guy, in general, just assume you're always wrong, and most of the time, you will be right. But just for everybody, just figure it's your problem. Okay? And life will be a lot smoother. Okay? I wish I could obey this, but I just have this... You know, something with a Y chromosome. I don't know. <laughs> it's a problem, but that really happened to me. Okay? So, you know, if you get in a fight with someone and you're emotional, just slow down. Slow down. Just, oh, just slow down. Make time slow down. Don't say anything. Don't make any decisions until you can reflect. In two seconds, you can blurt out something that will destroy this friendship that took years to make that could go on for the next three decades. Just don't, don't say anything. Bite your tongue. If you have to leave the lab, leave the lab. Don't, don't say anything. Waiting is generally a good thing. What you learn as a PI when there are problems in the lab is you don't want to get involved right away. Because if you do, you usually make things worse. If you're a bad PI, you never get involved and things faster. But if you're a good one, you wait, and most problems go away by themselves. And the ones that don't go away, then you deal with. And that's a good philosophy for life as well. Okay, the most practical advice I will give you in this talk is never, ever, ever, ever write an emotional email. Because it is guaranteed a thousand percent to come back and bite you in the ass, right? So if you have to fight with someone, try to do it in person. Wait, that if you have to, in person is good, okay? Because you can read each other's body language. If you can't do it in person, do it on the phone because they won't necessarily exactly remember what you said. <laughs> but if you do it in email, there's a permanent record for the entire world to see. Okay, so never, ever fight in an email, ever, ever. Practice public speaking, okay, in the US anyway, and probably in the UK and most of the world. To get a job, you have to give a good talk. Nobody is a natural public speaker, nobody. I've never met anybody who's get up and talk. Practice is essential. First time I ever gave a talk, which was in college, I took a course in public speaking, I vomited. Okay? I was so nervous. And it took years to get over being nervous. And many people never get over that. And that is normal. The more talks you give, the better you will be at them. It's just really a process. You try to get feedback from people in the audience to, to correct things, but the more talks you give, the better. You know, when you go to meetings, don't, don't be afraid to ask questions at seminars and meetings. Stick your hand up there. Don't let the old idiots in the front row ask all the questions. You know, sometimes you get a job because you've asked four good questions at a meeting. You say, who, who is she? she? She's asking really good questions. Right? Whose lab does she work with? I, I've seen this happen, okay? So participate. 
participate. And here's just a, a really good practical tip. If you have to give a talk in a meeting, if you ask a question before the talk, you will be much less nervous when you give the talk. Just the fact that your voice has been heard by the same audience really lowers the pressure on you. Just try this. Okay, when you go to meetings, remember the talks are the least important part of the meeting. If it was just talks, we can do it by FaceTime. Okay, we go to meetings to meet people. Okay, to meet people. Meeting people, forming relationships, friendships, collaborations, that's why we go. Get, don't just hang with the people you know. Right, get out of that box. Meet new people. Force yourself. I know it's hard, but do it. Don't prolong your PhD. I guess you guys can't, right? They get you out of here, which is good. In the US, it's a problem. You don't need five cell papers, three will do. <laughs> now, one solid paper is all you need is a PhD. Right? Doesn't have to be in a high flying journal either. What do you need to learn? Not to fear the unknown. Meaning, PhD, you have confidence. If I need to learn a new technique, I can learn it. I have the tools because I know how to troubleshoot. I can think. Did I mention this? You need to design, interpret, and perform experiments. Yes, I think so. And then, I haven't mentioned this, but if you can't write, you can't have a career. So somewhere along the line, you better learn how to write well. Right? Because if you don't write well, you can't get your papers in the top journals. You can't get grants. So you have to learn how to write. And that, you know, you can get help from your PI, but it's practice, practice, practice. You've got to practice. That's on you. If you stay in a lab for an extra year, it's not going to help you. Typically, it'll help your advisor. For future PIs, a postdoc is probably the most important step. Be very careful in choosing a postdoc lab. All things being equal, go to a wealthy lab who have enough money to support whatever experiment you would like to do. With a PI who knows lots of people who can tell them how brilliant you are when you're looking for a job. Right? And ideally, during your postdoc, you find the major topic for your research career, at least what we're going to start on. Ideal postdoc project, something a little off from what the lab you're going to is doing that you can just take on your own and, and then start your own career. Think about it. Think about where we're going. Visit the labs you're interested in. They should pay for your visit, right? And domestically, for sure. If you come to the U.S., probably not, but they should pay for where, you know, local expenses. Most important thing, not the PI to talk to. They're professional bullshitters. That's what we're good at. You got to talk to the people in the lab. And I would try to talk to some people who have left the lab. I'd try to get the email addresses uh, for people who have left the lab and arranged to talk by phone or FaceTime, et cetera. Find out what the lab was like. Find out what happened to all these people. What's the track record of people coming out of this lab? <laughs> some very famous labs, and you've never seen a PI who came out of that lab. Right? So you've got to find out. Does the PI help their people when they leave? The most rewarding thing as a PI is to see the people who have been in your lab and see them have an independent career. This is the best thing, to know you have not screwed up their lives. Okay, this is an amazing thing. But 10 or 15% of the, of the PIs out there, they eat their young, right? They eat them when they leave the lab. Sometimes they're very supportive in the lab, and then they leave, they're jealous, they're afraid, they're paranoid. They do not help them. In fact, they do the opposite. They, they try to subvert them. Don't go to a lab like that, right? Do they let you take a project or reagent with you? If not, what are you going to work on? Find out beforehand. You know, you go to a bad lab as a PhD student, that's shame on the department. Go to a bad lab as a, as a postdoc, shame on you. You just spent, well, here, what is it, three years, four years learning how science works. You should know how to pick a good lab, okay? You have to work at it, though. You really got to do your homework. At some point, sorry, at some point, uh, as a student or a postdoc, you need to sit down with your PI and discuss your career potential. 
Probably a good idea to do it every year. Right? Get their honest opinion. What do you think I am capable of? Many times they will tell you you're capable of something you don't think you were capable of. It's more positive than negative, actually, but you need to know this. And they aren't necessarily right, but it's a very important information. And as a PI, you need to, you owe this to your people to give them your honest opinion. Honest opinion about what, what they're capable of. I apologize. I, I, I spent the whole talk as, as if you have to be a PI to be successful. It's no longer the dirty little secret. Most students will never be PIs. And in fact, numerically, by far, the alternative career is a PI. So we need to change the nomenclature, right? Most of you will be doing something else. And there are, the beauty of PhD training is there are many things you can do. The students at one of the places I visited challenged me to come up with a list, which I have. That's a joke. <laughs> Although in most cities they paid pretty well, but that is a joke. There are so many things you can do with PhD training. Okay, the good news is that PhD training provides skills that translate to many interesting, good paying jobs, thinking logically and critically, writing, speaking, okay? So you'll find gainful employment. And I want to leave you with the idea that we have an important role as scientists to play in society and the political process. If we don't preach the gospel of the scientific method, nobody will. It's on us to do this. Education begins in the local schools. When your kids get to school age and they start getting interested in science, go to school. Tell them how important science is. Tell them how much fun it is. Okay, at that point, we don't have to tell them how crappy a career it is. We can wait until they're your age, okay? Uh, and I think, above all, we need to make science a more attractive career. Okay? I think we're exploiting you guys. We need to completely rethink the current system of research <laughs> because what we're doing is exploiting young scientists. It's ridiculous that training in the U.S. lasts until age 38. That's the time you get your first uh, tenure-track job on average. What this is is a convenient excuse for underpaying the most productive members of the lab, which are the postdocs. And the problem is we just have too many people in science. We could have a lot more people if we had more resources, but given the level of funding we have, we need to have less people. Okay, so who's the problem? Is it Congress? Is it the U.S. public or the British public? No, according to me, the enemy is us. What I've seen in Washington is that scientists really dictate how science is performed. So what is the optimal lab setup? What's the balance of PIs and postdocs and students? I've had, personally, 25 postdocs working with me. There's 50, but there's two PIs, so divide it by two. In a steady state, I can only have one. So that is not a sustainable system, right? So how many staff scientists should we have? How many graduate students? How many postdocs? What's really perfect? What's the optimal method for funding research? Is it writing down on a piece of paper what I'm going to discover, which I can't possibly know, which is the grant system? To me, this is incredibly stupid. Okay, so I have many more thoughts about this, and I know you all know about TWIV, because I heard a TWIV episode from here. Right? So this is this fantastic podcast that Vincent Racaniello does. And episode 208, I went up to New York, and we spent an hour and a half talking about how to fix science as a career. So if you're interested, listen to that. I'm going to end on an optimistic note. Uh, you know, the career is rough, but science has never been better. Never been better. This is the golden age uh, for biology. The advantages of becoming a life scientist, this is not a joke. You, we need you to save the world. Thank you. You do get a free degree, which in the US is a big deal. 
freedom, right? You should be, even as a student, you should be thinking about what your day is, what you're going to do. That should be you, not your boss. If you have a bit of an ego, you get rewarded for it. Show the world how smart you are. I think it's a good thing. This is obvious. You never run out of challenges. The learning never stops. And here I am in Glasgow, and you will, like me, be all over the world. You probably already have been. So I can join the Navy. You're going to science. <laughs> and you'll make friends all over the world. You know, you have friends in 50 different cities, people you know, postdoc you've trained, students you know. It's a fantastic career. You make the best friends. And one more thing, uh, except for my lab, uh, NIH is a fantastic place to be a postdoc or a tenure-track position. Yes, it's the U.S. government, but we have incredible academic freedom. No one tells us what to do. They give us money, and they basically tell us discover something. Okay, it's a beautiful campus. Uh, in the last 28 years that I lived in Washington, it went from a pretty boring city to a really interesting one, so it's not a bad place to live. Uh, if I were you and the choice was San Diego or Washington, I'd go to San Diego, but scientifically we could compete with anybody. So think about coming to LH. And if you need help in finding a lab, just email me, okay, and I'll arrange to talk to you. So I'm sorry I went over, uh, but that's all, folks, and um, I'm happy to, you know, I came here to talk to you guys, actually, uh, and whoever wants to talk to me will find time. And um, I don't care what the schedule is, let's have as many questions as, as we can. And then if people want to talk to me individually, I'll, well, I'll hang around. Okay? Anyone have any questions for John? Lights, can we get the lights? So it usually takes one person to break the ice. Excellent. So you said there's a couple of overcrowded uh, areas of biology would you like to speculate what you well, think they are? Well, I, I, I think the, area, you know, the areas where they, they basically have forced people into very large groups, like HIV and now flu, and I think it's happening with Flavia, I would stay away from these young scientists. Because I think you develop a group think that's very detrimental for people's careers. Right? And um, I, I want to be in a, in a field where I can work alone, you know, collaborating with people as necessary. But I know some of these projects, they actually have publication committees. You're in a, a group, you know, often very good people, but they have a publication committee where before you can publish your work, everybody in the group has to agree to it. And I don't know what that is. That is not science. And for sure, there'll be times when you make discoveries that challenge the wisdom of the group. And it's inevitable that people who have a vested interest in you not doing that will try to, will try to block that. And that is very, very bad. Okay, you may be wrong, but you have the right to tell the world what you think is the truth. And so I would avoid, I would avoid really big, big fields like that if I could. With hindsight, what has been your favorite phase of your scientific part of it, right? Every, every part of it. Postdoc was rough, because I was in a lab and the PI was, was just starting and he had no idea how to be a PI. And, uh, I wound up running the lab for large chunks of time, which was useful, but it was sort of painful and nothing really worked terribly well that I knew. She had a paper that was really good that came right after. So that was a bit hard, but it was a new country, so that was fun. The student was great. 
young PI, I, I had a t you know, something I could tell you the young PI is I, uh, I, I did it just right randomly. No one would work with me because they were all afraid of me because I was you know, perceived as very aggressive, which I'm not really. <laughs> so no student ever came to talk to me, which was very good. Because when you're, when you're just starting out as a, as a PI, you're really good yourself, and the students are really bad generally. So what you wind up doing is spending your time helping someone who can't discover anything when you should be working in the lab. So I had four years just working with a technician who I just randomly hired a really good person because I had no clue. And we were incredibly productive. So that was good. And then going to NIH was, you know, not, everything is good. I mean, until about 10 years ago, I did a lot of work in the lab myself. So I would say last 10 years, I still love, but not as good. What I really liked doing was working in the lab. And why did I stop? It's just, it just gets hard. You're less competent. You can't see. I never used to wear glasses. And now I used to do a lot of microscopy. And now I have to have two pairs of glasses in the microscope room. One to look at the, the so I'm looking at the cells. I can take them off. But to, to look at the scope, I, I need these glasses. And then to look at the screen, I need these glasses. And it's all in the dark. And it's just like, shoot me. You know, I was just, ah. Right? And then I do 96 well plates, which I still sometimes try. I lose track of where I am. And I, I feel like Mr. Magoo. So that is sort of the least favorite part of my career. But everything else before that, I really liked. That's a very, very good question. Yeah, I, I just, you know, I didn't know it until, until I was forced. Uh, I, I never would have been a scientist except the university I went to forced me to do a, a research project. And I had no idea that I had any inclination or like of science. But then I did that project, and I was like, wow. And I'll never forget that first night when I thought I made a discovery. I, I couldn't believe it. And that was the hook for me. I was just. It's like heroin. I mean, I just, not that I've ever taken it, but, you know, <laughs> from what I've heard. It's <laughs> uh, just like, whoa. You know, I just got that rush. Discover something. Whoa. And I still get that rush, even vicariously. You know, I don't do a lot of experiments anymore. But, you know, something your PIs have, and not all of you do, is we're really good at seeing things. So, you know, you may think, you may wonder what we do all day. Okay? But very often, you do the experiments, and you miss the discoveries, and we see them. And I'm still really good at that, right? And that's a kick, too. And, you know, not that it's worse when the postdoc sees it, in a way it's better, but, you know, I still feel needed, let's put it that way, right? And I still have, I've lost a lot of cognitive skills, I must say. I can't learn things as quickly. I used to be very good doing things in my head. You know, I could do any dilution very quickly, all that sort of stuff. And these days, not. Uh, but the creative stuff, I still, I don't think I've lost too much. Still can have read crazy papers and come up with good ideas. Yeah. Yeah. Following on from that, um, you said that you wouldn't have gone into science if it hadn't made you do a research. Yeah. What would you have done otherwise? Well, I would have been a miserable MD. I don't know what I would have done. <laughs> I don't know. Hopefully, I would have found something else. You know, you can tell I'm very independent spirited, right? So I would have found something, I'm sure. But it would have been a different life. Right? And you know, N is one. You can't redo that experiment, so you never know. And I, you know, I'm not terribly reflective. I don't worry about what could have been. I mean, I, I really try to make the most of what you got, you know, in the near future. And you know, looking back, I just find it painful, so I try not to do it. Yeah. What was it about the future? Yeah. Any more questions? Then we just thank John again for a great talk. Everyone comes tomorrow at one o'clock for the Stoker Prize lecture. Or not. Or not. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay.